This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley and welcome to the History Listen. 20 years ago this month, a terrified group of people sought shelter in an old teacher's college in East Timor's capital, Dili. It became known as the Compound. Initially, it was the headquarters of UNIMET, the United Nations mission to oversee the country's referendum on independence. But its aftermath was unprecedented. Western journalists were warned to leave the country. The UN Compound became the only safe place in Dili until gunshots, planes, and fear prevailed. This is the story of those dark and chaotic days told by three Western journalists and a Timorese UN employee who all fled to the compound. My name is Sebastian Guterres. In 1999, I was 26 years old and I worked for UNAMED as an information officer. The memories from that referendum have stayed with me very vivid and very strong. I was also a friend with many foreign journalists. They were filing reports overseas. Irene Slag was working for Dutch and Australian media. People were very afraid. There were rumours that there would be uh, violence. Many had already evacuated their belongings to the hills. Lindsay Murdoch was Jakarta correspondent for The Age and Sydney Morning Herald. It was certainly the most frightening time in my life. I've covered wars, riots, but I've never been as frightened as I was in Delhi in 1999. And Richard Lloyd Perry was Asia correspondent for the independent newspaper in London. Something terrible was happening, and we were in the middle of it. We were witnesses to it. It's taken almost a quarter of a century, but today the people of East Timor got what so many of them have pleaded for for so long a chance to express their own wishes on the future of their land. Tonight, our coverage from Timor, the UN's attempts to make it work on a day most believed would never come. Voting day, 30 August 1999. It was actually rather a calm day as I remember it. It was certainly tense, people were anxious, but the one thing that didn't happen was that people stayed away. And there are large numbers of people queuing to vote. Uh, even in some of the places where there's been violence recently and we might have been... I remember this old man came out and he sort of screamed with delight that he had voted. I think it's, uh, it's like a miracle. Yeah, I never, I never uh, imagined it can, can happen. It's an historic moment. Uh, he had just been chewing betel nuts, so his whole mouth was crusty and red and he went outside and kissed all the foreigners he could see on the, on the cheeks. So we all had red cheeks. He said it was the time of the Timorese. I cast my ballot and then I went home. The intimidation had failed completely in that respect. All the ballots were brought back to Dili to be counted and then there was this rather tense interlude this few days and everyone was just waiting for the results. The pro-Indonesian militia groups increased their presence on the streets. The militia were able to go about 
during their intimidation. They were like kind of teenage heavy metal fans. They had kind of long, oily hair, silly tattoos, horrible T-shirts with kind of grotesque monsters on them, and this self-conscious, snarling manner about them. They pass by with their car. I completely lower myself lower than the bike seat. As soon as they pass, I start the engine, and I, when I run, they say, like, that's the bastard. We should have killed him. Some were forced to take part in some of the things they did. Some of the local people had organized their own militia, the pro-independence militia. They were unarmed, but they were armed with sticks. They were trying to protect their houses, their neighborhoods. And there was a battle between them and the militias. And no one was immune. Clearly, the foreign journalists were targets. BBC correspondent Jonathan Head was chased by militia until he tripped and fell to be beaten by a militia member standing over him with a knife. Jonathan Head was attacked with one of the machetes, but with the blunt side, but he was hit so hard that he broke his arm. I have to say, you know, my life flashed before my eyes. I really thought I'd had it. The moment these militias ran, the police just stood aside. The militias ran straight through. Everybody had to run for their lives. I mean, really run for their lives. The police are doing absolutely nothing. The, I, the UN civilian policemen had to run as fast as the rest of us. Yeah, well, there was a number of incidents. Keith Richburg from the Washington Post uh, had a machete smashed across his back. Jason South, photographer from The Age, was almost stabbed. An attempt was made to stab him. You know, one doesn't want to exaggerate the sufferings of Western foreign correspondents like us who were there by choice, but for violence of a kind to be inflicted on someone I knew, one of us, was a sign really of how serious it was getting and how bad it had the potential to become. For several hours, a few hundred militia men were able to bring this city to its knees. The absurdity of the incident has confirmed for many the belief that East Timor's militia are living completely outside the laws of Indonesia and are simply considered untouchables by Indonesia's police. The UN's own political analysts have told the ABC that they believe... The that evening, we watched the film which someone had shot of Jonathan, you know, about to be hacked to pieces, although he wasn't in the end. And I think that was a a turning point for a lot of people. And that day and over the next couple of days, a lot of people headed to the airport and pulled down. After this incident, the BBC had a security meeting uh, decided that it was too risky to stay. So they were the first large international media corporation who left, and that sent jitters among the other foreign journalists. Early September 1999, waiting for the result. Dili was such a, a simple little place. It's like a town in a Graham Greene novel. There were two hotels, big, big-ish hotels. I mean, they weren't big at all, but they were big by local standards. There was the, the Turismo, where I was staying, a lot of journalists, which was a rather charming place with a garden and a kind of rather rambling setup. And then there was the Marcota, which was a a kind of glass cube, air-conditioned cube, a very kind of creepy sort of place. It was always full of 
spies and shady people. You always felt that people were eavesdropping. But there was a big hall there where the announcement was made. And we all turned up, all the journalists were there. The head of Unimet, Ian Martin, came in and without any ceremony, really, it was a really unmomentous occasion, announced the result. The votes cast have now been counted. I hereby announce 94,388 in favour and 344,580 against the proposed special autonomy. The people of East Timor have thus rejected the proposed special autonomy and expressed their wish to begin a process of transition towards independence. There was no shouting or cheering or waving a flag. It was kind of weird, really subdued climate of fear because we didn't know what was coming next. Yes, very subdued. People were actually whispering because as soon as it was announced, militia trucks were roaming around the town, shooting in the air. Saturday afternoon, September 4, 1999. By the time the referendum has been announced, our numbers had dwindled. There were probably about, I suppose, 10 or 15 people left around there. Yeah, you know, we began to feel more and more isolated in this crummy little hotel with um, shots audible from time to time around town, rumours circulating, people fleeing. It was clear that this was, this was the beginning of a new chapter, a very unpredictable one. Dilly people were extremely nervous about what was coming following this referendum result. Cry Timor tonight. The long predicted bloodbath has begun. The vote in which almost four out of five East Timorese chose independence has served only to enrage the pro-autonomy forces. They're running amok, and now most of the journalists and the UN's high-profile spokesmen are gone. They were burning the Makoda. They'd attacked the Makoda where most of the journalists were staying, a lot larger hotel. That was the first target of the militia. And the journalists there had no option but to move. And so they went for that first. And then the Australian ambassador and Australian military officers and Indonesian police and soldiers came to the Turismo Hotel and said, they're coming here now. You have to get on this truck now. Get to the truck's going to the Australian consulate and from there to the airport. And I said, I'm not going. I said, the only way I'm leaving here is if this truck takes me to the UN compound. I remember climbing into the back of this truck, feeling very resentful about it, with a crew of other people, including Lindsay Murdoch, and driven the mile or so to the UN compound where a lot of other people had also gathered. Going down the road, we came under fire. Militia, were, I, I saw them running through buildings. They were running towards the Turismo, but on the way, they were smashing whatever they could, running through, smashing windows, smashing cars. We were really the last people who were evacuated. I think I was the last one with one colleague in the back of the consul's car. A colleague and I had been working for the past few weeks with a, a local driver, a very dear man called John, who drove one of these ramshackle blue station wagons. And 
He'd been much more than the driver. You know, he'd looked out for us. He'd um, introduced us to people. And um, in our selfish haste to get out of the hotel and get to the compound, we'd completely forgotten about poor John, but he turned up at the compound soon after we arrived. It was clear things were, were getting bad. And we said to him, well, you know, John, come in. You, you should come here and take shelter. And he refused. He, he had a family, after all, in another part of town. And we realised we did know what was going to happen. We might not see him for a while or, or even again. So we hurriedly tried to work out you know, what we owed him, pulled our money, gave him some money, and he drove off. There is a, a very real danger for those who go out into East Timor now, even into the streets of the capital between this compound and the airport. And I always remember seeing him disappearing, driving away from the relative safety of this UN base into Dili. There were already there was smoke rising from parts of the city. A large plume of smoke now rise into the air, um, perhaps about two kilometres from us, which looks like a fairly substantial fire of some description, and that's come up in the last minute or two, just east of the compound. There was a lot of Australian federal police there who were coming in with information about what was going on. So it was a good place for a journalist to be because we were getting a lot of information about what was happening outside of the gate. It was all happening there. It was the, the, the compound was the target. Not to attack, but the Indonesians wanted to corral everybody who was left into the compound. I went up to right up to the back of the compound and uh, where there was a makeshift hospital. Got a little place where I to sleep on concrete there. Things were pretty tense. The militia had surrounded the place. Yeah, the UN compound, I mean, it sounds rather grand. It was anything but. It was a very simple place. It was a little teacher training college, so like a school, really, with single-storey classrooms and offices on a kind of slope against the hills that rose up behind Dili. The UN had chosen it because it was a bit at the outside of the city, that also made it quite dangerous because we were overlooked from the hillside and everybody could see into the compound if you would climb up the hill to the mountains. So, yeah, they had put razor wire on the top of the walls that surrounded the compound. I could have run up the hills. I decided to come back in. I was employed by UN then. You know, the focus was inside UNAMED compound. All reports and all this sort of stuff. Other journalists who were like friends, close friends, they were filing reports overseas. Yeah. This report is from Tim Lester in the UN compound in Dili. For those inside the razor wire fences of the UN mission's headquarters, it's intimidating enough. For those outside, 1,500 refugees clinging to the compound's perimeter in the hope that proximity to the UN will protect them, the gunfire all day yesterday grew steadily more terrifying. Most of them, women and children, young families, had gathered in this space next door. And I remember just around dusk as the, the sun was setting, we suddenly heard shots. And there was gunfire. It was an absolutely terrible moment. Terrible night, terrible, terrible night with the militia fired into them or um, something spooked them and they started to come over the, to climb up, come over the fence, barbed wire, 
one of the most horrific things I've seen where absolutely terrified, desperate mothers were throwing their kids into the barbed wire and telling them to crawl over the barbed wire, slashing them and jump down. ...to the fence, ripping clothes and skin as they reached the razor wire, pushing their children through the barbs. Eventually, some order was restored. They opened the door and they allowed people to file in. Yeah, there were people everywhere. And there was no good sanitation, there was no water, there was no food, only the food uh, some of the Timorese had brought in, some rice, and uh, they had brought in little cookers. The Timorese people were traumatized. They had seen so much violence. So the, we were surrounded by hundreds of really deeply traumatized people. And you could see that on their faces, but many completely shut down. The fear that drove this group to rush the razor wire is now established across East Timor. The real issue was not about us, it was about the Timorese who were in the compound. And the word from the UN in New York was that they had to leave and it was clear that if they had have gone out of the compound, the women would have been raped and a lot of the men would have been killed. I remember talking to uh, Pat Burgess, an Australian UN official, over the last 24 to 48 hours since the announcement of the result of the ballot, we have a new refugee population of about 150,000 people who have fled their homes in terror. I mean, I don't think there's a single area... He had tears in his eyes. He said, I can't believe that they're going to force these people to leave. He said that dreadful things are going to happen to them. He said, we've got to try and do whatever we can to avoid it. And the UN staff actually were standing up behind the scenes to Ian Martin, going to him saying, you can't do this. You cannot open those, get, force those people out. Humanitarian agencies have no chance at all of assisting them because they can't travel in safety. And so in a very short time, we're gonna have a major problem with the supply of food and medicine and basic healthcare. You know, emotions were running very high and the personal psychology of people was very interesting by that stage because something terrible was happening and we were in the middle of it. We were witnesses to it. But it was clearly also becoming very dangerous and very unpredictable. So we were all, in our own way, you know, negotiating that dilemma between our own nervousness and fear and, you know, the professional wish and duty to stay there and report on it. I remember I stood up and I told Ian Martin it was a disgrace and we'll be all writing very strong stories about it. Other journalists did the same and we all wrote a petition demanding that the UN reverse this decision and glad to say that the pressure worked and the mm. UN reversed the decision and those, the refugees were eventually uh, taken out to Darwin. Ian Martin was, um, was not very easy with journalists. He had a rather bureaucratic manner you know, what we needed was for someone to articulate what we were all feeling, that this was an absolute outrage against humanity, what was going on. Not only was the democratic election being flouted, people were being killed as we sat there. And I remember at the end asking him the question that was at the forefront of my mind, which was how safe did he think the compound was? And he didn't really answer. So I put it to him directly and said, if the militia were to attack this compound tonight, what's your personal plan of escape? And I really wanted to know because I wanted a plan of escape myself. And he simply answered, I, I don't have one. 
And Lindsay Murdoch, who's a very outspoken fellow, said to him, so we die. And Ian Martin couldn't answer. We didn't know what was going to happen and we didn't know what, how, how it would turn out and we had no one to turn to. It was a very frightening time. At some point in the compound, fear dawned on me and it felt as if it came out of nowhere. Clearly it had been fermenting in my unconscious for a while, but it really took me by surprise. And, um, and I do remember having um, extraordinarily vivid dreams. I remember dreaming of being a diver in a shark cage, sharks swimming around, battering against the outside of this cage. That's a dream that's very easy to interpret in, in the circumstances. We weren't getting much sleep. At about three o'clock in the morning, I opened my eyes and there, just right next to me, there was a, a mother holding a baby who'd just been born. And this mother was trying to keep the baby quiet from crying, but not to wake me. The, the baby had been born right next to me as I slept. And I remember thinking, wow, all the killings and the violence that's going on outside, you know, life goes on. Here's a little baby born. Joanna Remedius was the mother's name. And she actually named the baby uh, Unimed, Pedro Remedius Unimed, after the UN, because she was just so thankful that she got to the compound and she had the baby and the baby was well. September 7, 1999. Five RAAF Hercules aircraft will be used to evacuate around 300 non-essential UN staff from Dili. Australian nationals still in East Timor are also being given the opportunity to leave on the flights which are returning to Darwin later today. A number of Australian troops will help in the evacuation. So there it was. There was this offer. You can, you can fly to Darwin tonight if you want. And I told myself, well, I, no, I, th I think I'll... I think I'll stay. And then I decided I would go, and then I changed my mind again, and I just couldn't decide. I've never felt more indecisive or torn about something. And I was sitting there with my bags, ready to jump on board, and I was talking to a, uh, one of the military liaison officers who was a British colonel, a very friendly chap. And then there was uh, a sound I hadn't heard before. There was the... the, the the report of an automatic rifle, and then a whining, uh, a high-pitched whining, which came just after it. And he said, ah, that's a sign that they're overhead when you hear the bullet whistling. That was very close indeed. And that was enough for me. And I climbed in the back of the truck and was driven out to the airport. The journalists were put under a lot of pressure. We had 15 minutes to decide what to do. So it was either go on this evacuation flight to Darwin or stay, but not stay in the compound. And I thought, well, I'm going to stay because I don't trust the UN people. If we leave, they're going to leave. And then nobody would witness what would happen to the Timorese there. So that was the reason why I stayed. And I knew it was a risk. There were a handful of journalists who decided to stay, brave, very brave people. My office had been telling me for a few days that I had to leave and I didn't have any option. The Department of Foreign Affairs had been telling my editors that they had to tell me to get out. The streets were deserted. 
The idea was for the remaining journalists to get on an, an Indonesian truck. Members of the Indonesian military were on the truck. The plan was for them to stand along the side of the tray of the truck with the idea that, that anybody wanted to fire upon us, that they'd have to kill the soldiers first. I actually had a, a pretty good flak jacket, so I was more protected than some of the other journalists. In the back of this truck to Dili Airport, suddenly it was all visible, driving through the streets of Dili. And it was, it was horrible. It was like a kind of science fiction film where the people are all gone and the body snatchers have taken over the town. There were no ordinary people, no civilians visible at all. All people you could see were Indonesian soldiers and militiamen. And all pretense had gone of any difference between them. They were slapping on the back, standing side by side, laughing together. And all around, we, we could see fires and, and buildings burning. Eventually, we got to Dili Airport, this little old airport. And we were processed by the Royal Australian Air Force. It was this bizarre juxtaposition between the you know, the kind of horror outside, and then this, this bureaucracy. And I remember a very polite young Air Force lady saying to me, um, just sorry to ask you so, but just a few questions. Have you been scuba diving at any time in the last week? And I was able to tell her with all honesty that no, I hadn't been scuba diving. September 14, 1999. So we planned to go up in the hills and I had got the resistance to come down because I had a telephone connection up to the hills and to come down to help us to go up in the hills. And they came down and they said everywhere there's a lot of military, we are surrounded and we don't know if we can uh, get up the hill again. So I had to leave East Timor. I was the last one. And uh, myself came in the third evacuation to Darwin. But the one thing back in our head is like, how are the fellow uh, countrymen who remains in the country? Are they leaving? Are we going back? Are we doing something soon? Yeah, that's the, the, the one thing that is in our head. Yeah, people used to talk about Dilly Head. Dilly Head is, means that very complicated mixture of emotions which included a large component of, of shame. I was in a very great emotional turmoil during that period. I mean, you know, again, you don't want to exaggerate your own sufferings because the people who had been left behind were far worse off. But it was a strange time. Compound was produced by Brett Evans and Roz Blewett. The sound engineer was Russell Stapleton. It's a long journey for Timor-Leste, for East Timor to be an independent country. So many sacrifices and then uh, suffering. Yet, you know, you can reflect upon those as a lesson and turn it into something fruitful. Yeah. Sebastio Gutierrez, UN worker reflecting on events in his country 20 years ago. He's now back in Timor-Leste, working as a journalist. You also heard British journalist Richard Lloyd Parry, Australian Lindsay Murdoch and Dutch freelancer Irene Slecht.
And John, Richard's driver, who left the compound to shots of gunfire and smoke, despite being carjacked and robbed, survived and fled to West Timor with his family. And baby Pedro Unimet is now 20 and completing a degree at the university in Dili. I'm Rebecca Huntley. You've been with The History Listen. See you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.